Hello, everybody. This is Rob Fredette with the podcast HodgePod, and welcome. I am back now with the third episode of Three Talking Bob Crane, the definitive biography with authors Carol M. Ford and Linda Groundwater. We've, we're recording this on March 24th. This year, we had some major, major thunderstorms here in Memphis, Tennessee. So rather than have Carol and Linda stop, I let them talk, and then the power came back on. So we're going to pick it up here where Bob Crane was after the Hogan's Heroes ended. He was trying to get work, and here it goes. Well, what about, uh, you know, life after um, Hogan's Heroes? So he guest starred on Police Woman. Uh, Quincy M.E. and The Love Boat, as you said earlier. So he was getting some some acting jobs on these shows. They were coming. I remember Police Woman. I think that was Lindsay Wagner and Quincy M.E. with Jack Klugman. But I remember those shows. So he was still acting. But um, did you get the sense maybe he may have in, in talking to anybody that, you know, he was maybe depressed or was he just chasing that dream of getting back to the top. I know we had said he had been typecasted, but did you ever get a sense that uh, Bob Crane was, was searching for that, that second, that second wind in his acting career? Yeah. I mean, he was not, I wouldn't, we've been told that he wasn't a depressed brooding. Woe is me. It's the end of the world. Thank you. Murderer for killing me type of person. No, he, he was not. Um, he was, somebody who was in the acting industry, in the entertainment industry. And number one, he's needing to get jobs. He's needing to get jobs that are going to pay the bills. And mm-hmm. so what's happening is, is he's taking these guest starring roles, as you said, on like Police Woman um, and with Angie Dickinson and then, of course, The Love Boat and, and others. Uh, what he's also doing, in addition to those, is he's going on the road very, very regularly to do his play Beginner's Luck. That is keeping him very busy, um, and it's maybe at the time a bit of a step down, but it is still something he loves. It is still something he's pouring his whole heart and soul into, and he is doing it to the absolute best of his ability. He wants it to be a success. The, uh, then, on top of that, he, I mean, he stays busy. It's not that he's not busy. He also does... Um, a, sh- a Canadian show called Celebrity Cooks in early January 1978. And that has a whole urban legend myth wrapped around it, which we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. And then he also is doing something that is what we realize now is way ahead of his time. And that's the Hawaii experience where he is going, he goes to the Hawaiian Islands, he goes to the big island of Oahu, and he goes with the film crew and he's going to the resort and he's going back into the kitchens and he's going back into the areas where the public doesn't get to go. He's seeing how all of this comes together. And that was something that he had set to go uh, as a series. Uh, It did not take off. It didn't even get, get produced because by the time they got back from Uh, Hawaii and they Mm -hmm. started going into post-production, he had been killed. And so there's just no, they just canned the whole thing. They didn't even bother going and trying to find a replacement host. So it was a wash. And so they just let it go. Uh, But he had these things going and he had other things that he had been talking about uh, as well. In about a week before he died, 
he was in Scottsdale and he had an interview with a Scottsdale reporter uh, who just said, and I, I had the opportunity to talk to that reporter and he found Bob to be happy and, you know, very positive. He had things uh, in the, in the works. He was looking forward to getting back home. His daughter, Karen had just graduated from high school. Um, he was looking at, a whole new beginning. What we also know is that from Reverend Beck, he was also looking at starting to do some very serious work on his addiction, on his sexual addiction, and start to come to, he was starting to come to terms with that. And so Bob's whole, you know, those last six months of his life where people think that he's breaking down and falling apart and the film autofocus makes it out as you know, thank you for, you know, he's wear, walking around wearing the, the bomber jacket from Hogan's Heroes and saying, you know, watching old reruns and this is the best time of my life and I'll never get that back. You know, he he's not that washed up, depressed, brooding, miserable guy. He's just a human being who's moving on into the next phase of his life. He's hit some dry spots. He's struggling with uh, a personal um, issue in his addiction and he is looking to better his life and turn the page and take that next step and, and, and move forward. So he was uh, murdered on June 29th, 1978. And uh, real a quick correction. I said, Lindsay Wagner, you were correct. It was Angie hmm. Dickinson. Yeah. Lindsay hmm. Wagner Angie was Dickinson. bionic woman. So bionic woman. Yep. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I was going to mention that. I'll, when slap, you to it. I'll slap myself on the forehead. I'm sorry. Um, You're all right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no slapping. <laughs> no slap. But uh, June 29th, 1978. <laughs> But uh, that's just fascinating. So about his, um, you know, his last six months. So he seemed to be in a good mood. And you got to give him credit, though. He was keeping busy. And he, he, like you said, he, he wasn't, you know, like sitting on uh, the couch watching old reruns on syndication of Hogan's Heroes. He was trying to get that next that next yeah. next job. And, you know, he was young enough to get another job. I mean, you see actors now, they're getting oh, jobs yeah. in their 60s right. and 70s. My goodness, you know, and you look at, you know, we, he was never given the opportunity to try to turn that corner to, you know, even attempt to better his life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it must be said that he was involved with adult consensual women who, when he asked, they agreed to be either photographed or filmed. You know, we're not talking kids. We're not talking coercion. We're not talking rape. We're not talking Bill Cosby here. We're talking about consensual sex with adult women, period. Just a lot of it. Um, the media and the film autofocus, they, they tend to take that piece of Bob's life and blow it up out of proportion. Um, you know, Bob was chronicling everything in his life he was he was a note taker he was recording everything when i say that you know spending time in in the storage facility where all of bob's belongings were that patty and scott had kept um in in storage all of these years it was mountains i mean mountains of things to go through and let me say that he, he was taking record of everything. He was making sure that every part of his life was being 
recorded, not just in writing, not just in photography, not just audio, but all of it in video so that it would be birthday parties and trips to the dentist. And, you know, if he had a cavity when he went to the dentist or if he didn't go to the dentist, he would cross it out and put did not go, you know, (laughs) bad weather. Um, You know, it was so much. It sounds ridiculous, but it was so true. Every little detail. Every little detail. And and that, of course, all gets left out of the telling so that Mm -hmm. it makes it look like all he did was record sex. Well, no, sex, say sex was 5% of his life because you don't go from, you know, 8 in the morning till 7.59 the next morning having sex all the time. He lived for 24 (laughs) hours a day. So in those 24 hours a day, there might be recordings or video or audio or photographs or notations of 16 hours. Normal life. Normal Normal life. Dinner conversations. I mean, they went through and they found absolute rubbish. And, And why did he do it? You'll have to talk to a psychologist about why someone <laughs> feels the need to chronicle every single thing in their life. But like Carol said, I mean, there were literally, you know, dentist 2 p.m. Then it was crossed out, rescheduled to Thursday because of such and such. And then on Thursday, you'd see the dentist appointment and it would see rescheduled from Tuesday because of <laughs> this. And when I went, we wow. found blah, blah, blah. You know, it it's very, very detailed, very, mm-hmm. very extensive. So that although there might have been a lot of sexual stuff that we saw you miss out on all the other stuff this just happens to be the stuff that's scandalous and and people consider quote-unquote worth noteworthy but it was a very small portion of his life and if anyone thinks that these women didn't know they were recorded have a look at the way cameras looked in the 1970s have a look at the crime scene photos because they're out there there is no way these women would have had to have had the brain cell of an amoeba to have no idea. And they play to the camera. They smile to the camera. They wave to the camera. And by the way, after Bob died, many of these women called up. Where's my videotape? What's happened to my videotape? Well, they wouldn't have done that if they didn't know they existed. Mm-hmm. And it and was proven. Yes, yes, of course, because some of them were very high profile well-known people who did these things voluntarily, but Bob was never going to make them public. Right. So one, but once they're out of his control, because he's passed away, what's happened to them? What's going to happen to them? Oh my goodness. What's going to happen to them? And the Reverend Ned Beck, who was the person Bob was talking to about his addiction said, well, he's got them or he's handed them over to the police. They're not going to be made public. Um, and there was a, so people knew everything Bob did was with consent, with adults and with women, just women, just adult women. Carol, you, uh, you got me interested. And we you give people a pass on that, but we don't, you know, we give everybody else a pass on that stuff. We don't give Bob a pass on that stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, Carol, you got me thinking when you got to that storage unit with all of Mm -hmm. Bob's belongings, did you ever like, I mean, it's amazing. Did you ever like step back, number one? And number two, did you think like he was in the room with you with all this stuff that was there? Because that's (laughs) incredible. I'm a research guy. I love to do research. And you must have been like, wow. It was was very overwhelming. Um, I was there for a period of three days and, and three nights. I didn't sleep much while I was there because, you know, you're just kind of 
you know, first you're like, where do I begin? And then you just start and you just start going through and, and you're just kind of mesmerized by, by all of it. Um, I will tell you a story that it makes me smile and it's, it's, I personally believe, personally believe it, it, it is as I'm going to say, but of course, how, how can we ever know? We just, it's what you believe. So towards the end of the three days, I was sitting in the storage unit and, um, I had gone through just everything. First, I want to just say that all of the, the, uh, X-rated stuff has been destroyed. Bob's son Scott has since destroyed it all. I saw it being destroyed. And for people who get all excited about, oh, where are the naughty, where are the naughty pictures? Where are the, they're gone. They're all gone. They, they're done. They, they are history. Um, they no longer exist. Um, in fact, Scott said to me that, um, when I was in the storage facility, if you see anything that looks like it might be that, um, please hand it over to me. And I did. And I found something and I gave it to him and I watched him take the whole tape apart and just destroy it. Um, he has two kids. Uh, they were young at the time. Uh, the one is still very young and he's just, you know, that's just not the stuff that he wants the kids to, to ever get a hold of. Um, it's, it's in the past. Uh, and it's certainly what Bob wanted to, to have destroyed anyway. And it was what he was going to do, um, when he got back to LA after, uh, or at least allegedly what we have heard, what he was going to do is destroy it himself when he got back to LA after Scottsdale. So at the end, I'm sitting in the, in the storage facility and, um, I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, you know, what else have I gone through everything? Is mm-hmm. there anything that I have missed? And a postcard falls from, I don't know where it came from. It fell from somewhere and it landed at my feet. And on the one side, it was a picture of Bob Crane at WICC with his turntable and his mic and smiling, beaming across um you know, in the, in the picture, very young and you turn it over and in his handwriting, he has it autographed because it was intended to be sent to somebody in Bridgeport and yet it never got mailed. Why it never got mailed. I have no idea. Um, but there was an address on there and the woman's name was Carol. And what he had written on the postcard was, hi, Carol, thanks for listening. And then it was signed. And that I actually kept because to me, that was a moment of spending those, that, you know, not just those three days and not just the past, you know, since, you know, meeting up with Linda and Dee and, and doing all of this um, and, and but going way back to, you know, when I was just a kid and uh, looking at microfilms in the library and going, gosh, you know, I, you know, why did, you know, who killed you and why and who were mm-hmm. you? And, and, you know, it just kind of was that moment where I thought, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, um, it was a very um, overwhelming experience to sit in amongst all of his belongings and, and hold his, his wallet and hold you know, his Hogan's Heroes scrapbook and hold, um, you know, the things that his drumsticks, um, the things that meant things to him, that meant a lot to him. And, um, you know, it, it definitely was, um, an experience. 
So did I hear you right? The car dropped at your feet and it said, thank you, Carol, yeah. for listening? Yeah, it said, hi, Carol. Thanks for listening. That yeah. is, I, I, that is, I think, that is incredible. I, I mean, yeah, was, you could, that is just we, like, Linda, that just blows Linda, my mind. Linda D, <laughs> Linda D and I have had our share of um, odd experiences. Odd experiences. Um, Linda has one as well she can share. I mean, we've had lots, but these are just some of the ones that, um, do we think Bob is, um, I, I don't know what the right word is because I can't say, I don't know what, I don't know what that is on the other side because we've not been there. <laughs> but do I think he is in I think he's way. aware of it. He's aware. And, I think he's and, aware of it. His, Karen has said the same. He yeah. is aware. She believes yeah. he's aware of it. Yeah. I think um, I, I believe yeah. he is aware of it based on yeah. the experience that I had. He yeah. is definitely aware of it. Um, yeah, he's he's aware and yeah. and he's thankful. And yeah. whether it helps uh, him or not, he knows that someone has made an attempt on his behalf. My my experience was not not quite the same. Um, I would love to have that thing to hold, Carol, but I don't have that. I just have the the memory of what I was told. Um, when I first started this project, I was working in a bank, um, in a shopping center. And on lunch, I went to a store where, um, they had little crystals and dream catchers and things like that. And I don't believe in any of that stuff, but it was something to do on lunch. <laughs> and, um, I walked into this store and I was looking at something and a gentleman came out of the back room and said to me, who's that man with you? And I thought, I didn't come in with anybody. <laughs> so there must be somebody else who's walked into the store, and they think we're together, and he thinks that I know this guy, or maybe he thinks somebody stole something or whatever. You know? So I just said, what? And he said, who's that man with you? And I turned around, and there was nobody in the store but me and the people behind the counter. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're talking about. And he said, there's a man standing next to you, and he's got his hand on your shoulder. And I said, yeah, right. Uh, you know, what? And I said, well, tell, I said, tell, tell me about this man. And he described Bob to a T wearing his Hogan's Heroes uniform. What? That's unbelievable. And he said, yeah, and he said to me, um, I said, really? <laughs> You know, because he was going, yeah, right, yeah, sure. And I said, really? I said, what, what's he saying? He said, he said, does this make sense to you? And I said, well, the person you're describing, I think I know who that could be. And he said, he's saying, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but what he's saying is, thank you very much. I know that I wasn't perfect, but I'm not what people said that I'm not what people say I am. Thank you for believing in me. He what? said, does any of that make sense to you? And I said, sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I said goodbye, and I left very quickly. <laughs> what? And a few years later, I ran into the guy who said that to me again. And he said, you know, you walked out of the store that day, and I looked at the girls behind the counter, and I said to them, she doesn't realize what happened and how rare that is. And I said, I'm still not sure I understand what it was, but I know exactly who it was. And he said, you must believe that that's what happened. He said, he said, I saw it, not you. 
I know about it, not you. He wow. said, so it's not like you said to me, there's a person here with me. And I said, yeah, I saw it. He said, I'm telling you what I saw, even if you couldn't see it. I'm and I said, okay. So at that point, I believe he's aware of it beginning. And Carol wasn't with me at that point. Um, Carol came a year, a couple of years later. Um, but I already had those, um, you know, that was the beginning. And so that once Carol started having her experiences, we, uh, I know it sounds all very odd and airy fairy and whatever, but how could I not believe that to be true? Exactly. And when I, you know, and when I mentioned it to his daughter, Karen, she said, I have, that'd be dad. (laughs) Wow. Leave it to him to hang around. Yeah. She said, She said he'll be hanging around if his name's mentioned. He's there. Yeah. Both of those stories are are incredible. I'm just still floored by Carol's story. My goodness. (laughs) I'm just like in shock. I'm just annoyed that I couldn't feel it or see it or, you know, somebody else experienced that. Somebody told me what I experienced. I didn't get to, I didn't feel it. I've still never felt it. Maybe he, maybe he, maybe he's been anything because I can't feel them. Well, maybe he's been, uh, maybe he's helped you write the book and nudged you in some way when you wrote the book. Maybe he was, uh, I I mean, I believe that Hmm. I believe that wholeheartedly because of how this whole process. I seriously have no idea how it started other than, gee, that's not fair. Let me do something about that. And you know, know? (laughs) how, how Linda and D and I, you know, came together and, and, you know, I mean, it, it's been an experience. I mean, the, the part of researching and, you know, okay, okay. Writing, writing it is writing, you know, you just sit down you take what you have. You, you, you know, lose two years and you, you try to do it right. You can't edit your own work. And, and so, you know, Linda, Linda does, you know, thankfully salvaged <laughs> parts that, that didn't sound good when I wrote them, but, um, but it, you know, there it just there is just so much of a, so a, a build the whole thing and you know things work out the way the way that they're supposed to um you know i i had started to the the radio hall of fame campaign in amongst all of this you know nobody tells you when you're just a grassroots you know little research team and you're writing a book uh, of this magnitude that when it is published, guess what? You have to go and do radio interviews and do promotion and go on TV and do, you know, do these things. And, um, you know, having the, the, the website and the Facebook presence already in place. I mean, that in and of itself, um, there are authors who get their book published and they're like, okay, now what? Uh, well, you have to promote it. Well, how do I do that? Well, we already had a fan base. We already had mm-hmm. people that we could pitch the book to. And so there were just things that just happened in just such a way that, um, you know, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. It was hard work. It was but at the same time. Hard work. <laughs> it, it, was was, hard work. it was also very beautiful. It was very humbling. And, and, I think the thing that, you know, that Linda and Dee and I have is that we're coming at this from all from the place of, of good. 
and not, and I don't mean that, okay, we're only going to talk about good with Bob, but we're coming from this from a very, um, you know, a place of wholeheartedness. Um, you know, there's, there's no sneakiness. There's no trying to, you know, get one up on this person or that person. We're just trying to balance the scales to have people understand that there is so much more to Bob's story than what they have been told up until our book. And it's, it is still hard work because, you know, people, people see autofocus. They know that. The sad thing about autofocus is that, you know, even Paul Schrader says that the whole thing is a distortion and that it's not meant to be true or definitive. But to the millions of people who saw that movie know that, no, they just think that that's, that that's, that's it. And they tell us, well, haven't you seen autofocus? You know, you know, well, who wrote this? A nun? You know, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that between the three of us, we come at this from such a place of, of warmth and and goodness and that as joe cosgrove told me once you are on the side of the angels because what you're doing is the truth yeah and keep going with that yeah today it's just uh, everything and everything's the- in your face these days and you know go, go up one mm-hmm. on somebody and sometimes it's just nice to have a book to read and just learn about something rather than just make accusations or throw sure. mud. Yeah. So I think that is, oh, uh, yeah. that's refreshing. Oh, yeah. You know, what I really loved is that, and, and we talk about this every now and then is that our names are on this book, but it is the story of 200 people because those people became many of them. We became very close to, individually as as friends um and and people that we came to care very much about and as people who represented a part of bob's life that they felt they needed to close the door on because they were so upset at how someone that they loved or knew or cared about was being represented and so when we finally had their understanding and their trust to say, this is what we're looking to do. This is why we're looking to do. And we are going to tell a true story. We're not going to sugarcoat, but we're not going to ignore the good truth. If there's good truth, those people we were in touch with sometimes, I mean, I remember seeing an accidental email from Marlene Martell that just to this day makes me laugh. Um, and people that, you know, um, I mentioned him before when Leo McElroy came into Australia at one point on a visit with his family and he phoned up. We talked on the phone for three hours about everything, <laughs> about Bob and about everything else. You know, Jim Senich, when I ended up back in the States, I went and spent much, much time with Bob's cousin, Jim. You know, Carol has spent a lot of time with with Carly Zita, a friend the, of Bob and Bob, family. And, yeah, and we, I mean, the book the book we, is dedicated to Charlie. Charlie Zita mm-hmm. was his best friend from yep. high school. I mean, these are people these, that are, are not that, celebrities, but they are important to Bob, and then they became important to us, yeah. and vice versa. And their their stories, they are so would tell us often how relieved they were, how happy they were, um, how comforted they were 
that someone being Carol and Dee and myself wanted to tell, tell about the Bob that they knew, tell about their little drummer boy, tell about their cousin, tell about their workmate or their friend. Um, you know, I had Bob. somebody say to me uh, from Stanford High School, mm. and and I and I'm and I'm blanking on who it was, but it was one of his classmates. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, "This is just about the most beautiful thing that a person can do for somebody." And it, you know, again, it's just like Linda said, it's the serendipity of all of these things coming together. That and going back to the beginning when we first started our our episode tonight, talking about trust, you know. When you, when you earn trust, you know, that's precious and you never want to break that and you want to always honor that. And we honor all of these people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's their, their version of Bob through their lens, but it meshes with darn near everybody. And it was important to include all of that because that is evidence. That is evidence. If we just said 200 people thought Bob Crane was a great guy, how is that compelling? Um, it's not. So you have to, you have to build all of that through. And it might have been repetitive in places, but you know what? That repetitiveness builds upon itself and lends to the overall picture of who Bob Crane was. And it was being told by the people who knew him and in many cases, knew him better than most. Wow, that's incredible. That's just the, the, just the way that the people you interviewed, the length of getting the book uh, published and writing and research and the obstacles that you may have run in as you wrote the book. Uh, so he was murdered on June 29th, 1978. And you said earlier that the murder is still unsolved. Has there ever been any attempt to try to find out who did it? Uh, in what, 40, 45 years now? Um, has there any been, any been case, has the case been open, closed, or where does that stand now at, in 2023? It's, um, there, there was an attempt back in 2017, 2016, mm-hmm. 2017, somewhere in there, um, where a Fox News reporter decided to investigate on his own and there was a big splash over good morning America about it. And, um, um, they thought that they had discovered, uh, some new evidence, uh, being, um, a small sample of blood that had been in John Carpenter's rental car, John Carpenter, the man who was always the prime suspect who was arrested eventually and tried but acquitted due to uh, lack of physical evidence. Mm. Um, so nobody's officially been um, – uh, the crime is still unsolved, as you said. Um, so in, in – I think it was late 16, 2016, um, they had um, a, a grand reveal, you might say, on um, 18, on one 18. of the next was, – was it? Okay. I thought might have been when his book came out though. Um because I thought that the actual reveal was, was sooner than that. Maybe it was seventeen. 
Anyway, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. But it was around that time. Um, mm-hmm. And it turned out to be inconclusive that they there was no match to uh, John Carpenter uh, or Bob, it was it was Bob Crane's blood that they were trying to to match um, in the rental car. And so it just went to another dead end. Um, and then that was the last, I guess you might say, big thing that um, that had been done. Unfortunately, because of the poor way that the crime scene was handled from the outset, there is likely not going to be a resolution to this case, sadly. The crime scene was botched from the get-go. Evidence walked out of the uh, apartment. Um, people were smoking. People were coming and going. They never really secured it. Um, it was a very, I mean, if you want to compare it to anything, I mean, it would be kind of like the John Bonet crime scene where it was, you know, they weren't equipped to handle this kind of a, a crime and mur- a murder. And so they were very inexperienced and they allowed evidence to leave um, that crime scene without securing it. Because of that, um, they had they had a prime suspect in, in mind, John Carpenter, who, by the way, is different from the film producer, uh, director, um, and that it just never went beyond that. There are so many theories. Uh, we could spend all night talking about them, but in the end, that's all they are, are mm-hmm. theories, and they cannot be proven or disproven at this point in time. And so to discuss them only leads people on a crazy rabbit. Uh, the only thing that we can say, uh, and that the police have proven is that it could not have been a woman because of the way the forensic evidence, uh, suggested uh, at the crime scene that it, the, the strength of the, the swings of the, of the murder weapon, which they believe was, uh, the camera tripod, uh, the arc of blood was not, um, as it would have been if it had been a woman, uh, compared to having it be a man. So the strength, the upper body strength would have indicated, um, uh, differently uh, if it had been a woman. And so, you know, it, it's unfortunately going to probably, unless there is a deathbed confession somewhere along the way, um, the key players are all now gone. Um, there is, there's nothing but dead ends left. And sadly, I think it's going to be one of those, Hollywood unsolved murders that will continue to garner the true crime fanatic listener, TV viewer, and by the same token, then all of the uh, media that comes out, you know, the true crime podcast, the true crime television shows, Mm -hmm. uh, Linda, bless her heart, she did the Reels autopsy um, episode, Mm -hmm. uh, the last hours of Bob Crane during covid uh, no less, and and handled herself beautifully on that. She she just you know hit it out of the park with with her appearance on that. Um, but these are things that you know in the beginning we didn't want to get involved with them because that's not what we are trying right. to to tell. I mean, it gets told over and over and over. But what we're finding that is if we ignore them, then people ignore what we've done and they don't know about what we've done. And so we are becoming much more. Um, active in those types of things to, yes, we'll talk about the crime scene and yes, we'll talk about the murder and yes, we'll, we'll, you know, go so far as to say there are theories, um, you know, but we don't subscribe to, to any of them um, because we can't. Um, and, you know, 
And, and then, but then in the same token, we can then talk about the things that we do now as we've done here um, Absolutely. on your show tonight. Absolutely. And it was extraordinary, extraordinary uh, information and episode tonight. And um, the book again is Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography, Carol M. Ford. And Linda Groundwater join me tonight for this episode. D. Young is also a co-author of the book. And uh, you couldn't have put, picked a most perfect picture for the book. I love the smile. It's, uh, it, it's very nice. I like it. So if you want a book that you want to read, gets you sucked in, it's over 600 pages. I think you'll love it. Uh, you get from the time Bob Crane grew up. And through when he was uh, till his death in 1978, it's a tremendous, tremendous read on the career of uh, Bob Crane. So, Linda, as always, you're always kind enough to jump on, even though you're, what, 14 hours ahead now of me in Australia. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Carol, I want to thank you, too, as well, for coming on my podcast tonight. I hope you both enjoyed it because I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I I hope to uh, maybe get you guys back on again, maybe with some items we didn't cover, maybe somewhere down the road. Sounds right. 